the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I whipped him and there was vaginal penetration and pissing on stage. Um, it was pretty full on, but it was, it was good fun. And well, I think we, we did quite a few nights, so by the end of it, um, I had to sort of hold back on the whipping a bit. My name is John Doran, and I write about music. In this series of British Masters for Noisy, I have been interviewing notable figures from the history of popular music, from Dizzy Rascal to Jimmy Page, from Brian Ferry to Marky Smith. All of them are outliers in their field. Today, I am talking to Cozy Fanny Tutti, an artist and musician whose work has continually innovated, challenged and outraged since the start of the 1970s. Whether as a member of the transgressive art collective Coombe Transmissions, or the boundary-destroying industrial group Throbbing Gristle, or as an electronic musician with her partner Chris Carter, over the decades, her work has brought her into direct conflict with the police, the tabloid press, the British government, the music industry and the art establishment. And despite this, she remains to this day a uniquely progressive artist. Hi, Cozy. Welcome to British Masters. Hiya. So I think by any sane standards, you've led what could be called an interesting life, from like early youthful explorations into psychedelia in Hull to being a core member of one of the most transgressive art collectives that this country's ever produced, to being a founding member of one of the most groundbreaking and influential groups the world has ever produced, to working as an artist in the sex industry, to causing rambunctions in the national press and parliament, and to producing a vast body of work with your long-term partner, Chris Carter. And I was wondering, bearing all of this in mind, when it came time to set down your life as a memoir, it must have seemed like a daunting task, really. Yeah, it was. At first it was exciting, because I thought, all oh, right, I'll finally get it all down. And I started doing it, but then I thought, right, I've got to have some kind of, like, methodology here to make sure I get what I want. So, yeah, I piled up the diaries and then pick out the things that were important for me to actually put in my book. 
you were an artist way before Throbbing Gristle happened. And um, I wanted to know if you could explain to us exactly what Coombe Transmissions was and where did this come from, this idea? It was a, a group, a collective um, of people that worked together as artists, all equal, all ideas into the pot, and we all worked together. And um, no boundaries, everything was up for consideration or to do personal fantasies, um, all that kind of thing were brought into the mixing pot. And that's how I understood Coombe. And the core of it was honesty with yourself, because to, for me, to do art, I have to tap into who I am and bring out the honest self-expression that I'm trying to communicate to people. So there were plenty of vivid passages in the book, and one that really leaps off the page is uh, your description of the action that Coombe Transmissions took place in at the Melkweg in Amsterdam in February of 1975. Can you tell us what this action con consisted of? Well, that came off the back of the um, Cooming of Age at the Oval House in London that we'd done, which was little sexual fantasy pastiches. But they were very gentle at, um, in the Oval House. Um, you know, girl on a swing, that kind of thing. Um, and that's where we met Sleazy, Peter Christopherson. And um, so when we went to the Melkweg, we said, do you want to come along and do it? We're going to sort of rewrite it a bit because Amsterdam's a bit more liberal. So, <laughs> so we rewrote it a bit and um, we had Jen on a cross, a cross as in X, um, chained to that with vomit and chicken's feet and everything over him. And then um, I, I whipped him and there was vaginal penetration and pissing on stage. Um, it was pretty full on, but it was, yeah. it was good fun. And well, I think we, we did quite a few nights, so by the end of it, um, I had to sort of hold back on the whipping a bit. I was just wondering how you kind of fitted into Hull, being very flamboyant people is one, one way of looking at it, in a not particularly flamboyant uh, city. Yeah, it was, it was difficult, uh, cause, but I'd been brought up on a council estate, which was pretty tough anyway. I mean, even at school, I think the, the only boy in my class that I didn't actually fight with would be my boyfriend. You know, there's a lot of violence there. And when you had then, you had the mods and rockers, skinheads, and then later Hells Angels, teddy boys. And it was all flick knives and, you know, razored combs with the skinheads and bike chains with the Hells Angels. So, like, you kind of, like, living, trying to live communally in new ways, you know, like, but that puts you in kind of, I guess, what you could call, like, a grey area. Um, would you, who, who did you get it worse from? Would it have been the police or the skinheads or, or who? Oh, the police. Because you can kind of deal with the skinheads and Hells Angels and things because you're all against the police, you know, in a city like Hull. You need all to come together to um, have some kind of uh, power, really. Was there a sense in which you'd kind of worn out your welcome in Hull, though? I think by that time, the, the people of Hull that used to come to where we did our street actions, they used, quite liked us. We, we got on really well with a lot of them. But the police were really sick to death of us because they saw that we had befriended all the other groups that they used to lock up regularly, and we were threatened that they would have us for something soon. 
so it was a good time to leave town. Your practice in particular went into various aspects of, I guess, what you'd call these days the sex industry. Mm. Um, how did that start and what were your kind of trepidations about doing this kind of uh, thing to begin with? Pornography as such was illegal back then and just regular sex magazines are usually by mail order, funnily enough. So when I started collaging them, I, I just thought... I could do this myself, you know. I could make a work of art that actually features me in these magazines. So I, I began to write off to magazines. Um, Greg, who was called Foxtrot, and he came through one day and said, um, and only I've got a competition. Um, let, let's do it. I'll take some photographs of you, shall I? I went, ooh. You know, I've never, never stripped off that. I've been photographed naked before. Being Coombe and who we were, we thought, oh, yeah, we'll do some interesting ones. Yeah. <laughs> in in that dentist chair, the Victorian iron um, dentist chair, with Fizzy dressed as a clown and, and then uh, Elizabeth with his other mask on, it looked like something really weird. And me reclining in the dentist chair in stockings and suspenders and nothing else. And they just said, it's not quite what we want, we're looking <laughs> yeah. for. Thank you very yeah. much. Can we just lose the clown, please? What was the pornographic industry of the UK of the mid-70s like? I mean, was it kind of dangerous. One would imagine it was maybe quite sleazy. Yeah, dark. it was, yeah. A lot of dirty old men, definitely. You'd go to some some bloke's flat and then he'd bring in his mates and I thought my mate would come and do a few, few photographs with you if you don't mind and they'd be all sort of a bit panting and just yeah, no, you make it really remember the worst bits. You making a film of an orgy sounds like an absolute hoot, whereas something more benign sounding like stripping actually sounds really quite dangerous. Mm. Yeah, stripping was something else because you're on the stage on your own and you've got this group of men that are fueled by booze. I can't remember if it was left in about my friend having her nipple almost bitten off. Yeah. Yeah, it was left in. Yeah, that was, that was pretty nasty. And, and that's all a case of some guy being able to get on the stage, you know, and being driven by his mates to go and do something to the girl, you know? A lot of the photographic work was leading up to this kind of quite momentous event, prostitution at the ICA, um, which not only was it kind of a groundbreaking art exhibition and almost certainly the most notorious um, uh, British art exhibition in post-war times, um, but also the third ever gig, I believe, of Throbbing Gristle, um, so, how, what were your actual ambitions for this day and how did it actually turn out in reality? It just went mad. We didn't expect it at all. There was interest from the press mm. and that turned sour. Um, it was mentioned in Parliament. Um, by the time all this stuff happened, and we're talking front page of tabloid papers... Yeah, I'd be sat on the tube going home and there'd be someone opposite me with the front page of the Evening Standard, and then there was the Evening News as well. And they were just on... I was just looking at myself on the front page of each one and on the, you know, the placards they have outside the tube. So, yeah, it was, it was all, over, all over the place. It really was, and it went abroad as well at one point. How did this affect you personally? At first, I'd... I couldn't understand what the fuss was. I mean, this was 1976 Britain. Yeah, the 60s were liberal, but the 70s were really intensely anything goes, as we know from all the stuff that's come out now, you know. People really 
there were no boundaries mm. and people took advantage of that. But there's more of a double standard though. Oh, incredibly, yeah, yeah. It was out there, but people were still being prosecuted and uh, put in prison just for distributing, you know, pornography. I mean, my magazines weren't really that hardcore. I didn't yeah. think they were. Like one, one of your main instruments in, in Throbbing Gristle was the guitar, but I, I think it's fair enough for me to say you don't really share a similar technique to Ngui Malmsteam or Eric Clapton, for instance, do you? No. What was your attitude as a group towards making music? What were you trying to achieve? It was a sound collage, and whatever instrument or tool is how I like to think of it, um, gave me the sound that I wanted. I was happy. Um, a guitar, you know, it takes too much... Oh, I can't be doing with that. I just want to be able to access it through effects units and then use that as a soundboard to go through to the effects pedals and then mess with it. Robin Gristle uh, played a lot of odd or unusual gigs uh, in their career and one of the oddest, I'm guessing, must have been when you played the Aundel School. So we're talking a public school, uh, a boarders school, quite establishment, quite posh, I'd imagine, in the middle of nowhere, and suddenly you've got this incendiary group who sound like nothing on earth playing to all these posh boarding students. I mean, how did that even happen? One of the boys wrote to us. He'd heard about us and wrote to us um, to come and play at his school. You know, all I got in school was policemen telling me not to do drugs. I'm, I'm annoyed, I feel shortchanged. <laughs> should have had someone that wrote a letter to Robin yeah. Gristle. <laughs> um, so even if you watch the footage now, it's crackers, isn't it? They all burst into song at the end. Yeah, Jerusalem was fantastic. We loved it. We thought, great, because we used to end with Martin Denny, but to end with Jerusalem with a hole full of these boys, you know, we were all like, this is really good. But one thing that doesn't often get mentioned about Robin Gristle is there's moments of extreme prettiness and mm. moments of quite, like, dancey music, almost. Um, where did these other influences come from? The local pub I used to dance a lot at, he used to get imported 12-inch singles, native New Yorker, that kind of thing. And then, so all this, like, disco stuff started coming through to me. And, um, and I'd be playing it in the house, you know, thinking of how I could dance or strip to it. And so that fed into TG as well. And of course, you're in the video to You Make Me Feel Mighty Real yeah. by the wonderful Sylvester, aren't yeah, you? Yeah. How did that come about? That was through my agency. I got booked for that. But they, the biggest thing that stood out to me was they said, could you dance to my, my record? Let's see what you're all going to do. And straight away, the, the girls from the school came up and said, right, we'll do this, this. They had names for every movement and then a time signature as well. And they sort of like spread out and they're going, two, three, four, five... Six, and I'm thinking, God, Jesus, I can't... Not that I can't dance like that. I mean, I could anyone, you can be taught to. I didn't want to. You know, I mean, what Sylvester's... It's a great song. Yes, really. You know, yeah. and they used to play it when I used to strip and um, a bit fast for stripping, but I used to love it. So me and Jane just did our own thing. So one of the most difficult aspects of the book is reading about the abusive relationship between yourself and Genesis Peoridge, and I'm talking in terms of 
physical abuse, emotional, psychological abuse. I mean, it's really kind of quite shocking in parts. Um, I guess what I was wondering is, is, did you look at the relationship in those terms when it was going on? No. I know it was pretty bad stuff going on, but to me that was less important than what I wanted to do with my life, you know. And, and for, the, for the times that it kicked off or the insidious kind of manipulation went on, I just, I just handled that and actually developed a, you know, a skill set, basically. And I had so many friends outside of the house from modelling, stripping, but um, I learned quickly not to bring my female friends home. I was listening to some of your early kind of work with Chris yesterday, and you've got tracks, Dancing Ghosts, from around that period, tracks where you're using like Roland 808 and a Roland 303, and it sounds pretty much like Acid House to me, but yet, you know, Acid House doesn't really happen until three or four years later in America. And that's what I'm driving at really, you know, it's like, did you, were you aware of these kind of wider trends going on in dance music and electronic music? Um, it was going towards the TR-808 for sure, you know. And, um, and when we got those, we just... Um, it was just like, you know, we were in a sweet shop, completely loving what we were doing and not thinking about how it would be received and where it would play, get placed in history even, which, like you said, yeah, it predates quite a lot of that material. But by the time that came through, we'd moved on to something else. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like forever the bridesmaid, never the bride. Thanks very much. Thank you, John. That was me, John Doran, talking to a British musician who has changed the course of popular culture. This is the British Masters podcast. Watch the visual versions of the episodes on YouTube by searching Noisy British Masters and subscribe here to get new episodes of the audio version. Godspeed, friends, and remember, listen to Electric Wizard. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.